Today, we're gonna to be taking a tour around some healthy habits of senior developers and some unhealthy habits of junior developers with William Johns. Let's get rolling. Software runs our world. It's at the center of everything. And you, a passionate software developer, are at the epicenter. The world needs you to be the best you can be. Welcome to the Driven Developer Podcast. I'm your host, Byron Somerdahl. I'm driven to develop and code because coding saved my life. In a few short months, I went from floundering junior to sought after senior and on to architect and eventually CTO. All the things I've learned through the years, I wanna give back to you. Join me and a new guest every week as we share the tools and skills you need to become a driven developer and make a more meaningful impact on our world. Today's episode is sponsored by Acklin Avenue. Acklin Avenue is a remote first software development company based out of Nashville, Tennessee. Acklin Avenue wants to be the best place in the world to create custom software. If that sounds like you, you should apply. AcklinAvenue.com slash jobs. Hey, everybody. Today I'm here with Will Johns from Nashville, Tennessee, and we're going to talk today about all kinds of really cool things. Will, why don't you introduce yourself? Yeah, so I'm Will Johns. Uh, I am a staff engineer with a place called The Butterfly Network. It's a really cool company. I also volunteer at a local boot camp, Nashville Software School, and help run the PyNash uh, meetup. Python meetup for Nashville and occasionally PyTN when it gets back up and running. Awesome. Awesome. So you're, you're really involved in the community. Would you say that, um, being involved in the community is, is a mark of a, uh, somebody that's on the road to being a senior developer? I know I'm kind of leading you. That's kind of what I'm trying to get at, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, so it definitely doesn't hurt, right? Like you can, you can definitely become a senior developer. Um, there's also different kinds of communities to get involved with, right? So there's local community. Um, but there's also like open source communities. So you could never talk to people around where you live and still have a hallmark of a community driven member. Sweet. So have you ever, uh, contributed to an open source project? Uh, indirectly, uh, more often than not, it's, we use a tool at work that is open source and we want a feature added to it and sort of propagates its way back upstream eventually. Um, but very, very infrequently, not as much as I should for sure. Yeah, yeah. I, I've done it in the past and, and haven't done it very frequently lately either. So uh, I, let's challenge each other. We both need to get back into open source con contributions. <laughs> awesome. Well, um, well, tell me a little bit more about why you got into programming. Yeah. Uh, so growing up, uh, I guess starting really young, um, naively, I wanted to be an inventor. Uh, as I got older, that sort of transformed to the more colloquial definition of engineer. And it was about high school that I realized that uh, electronics and computers didn't run on just magic, that somebody made that content. Um, we actually found this out by exploiting uh, just like generic HTML and like scripting on the front end to get additional codes to redeem for Magic the Gathering. Um, but then I got into Vex Robotics and like build-a-block programming and helping out locally with like Lego programming in middle schools. I uh, moved in to get what could kind of be determined as a internship, doing embedded engineering and have made my way up the ladder. That's awesome. So you mentioned Magic the Gathering. 
Um, that's an interesting way to get into programming. Do you, uh, do you want to expound on that or is that something that you, you need to keep closer to the vest? <laughs> well, so uh, Magic the Gathering used to do digital products that were standalone things and you could get codes for them uh, to redeem physical products for buying the digital game. And we found out that it, you could pretty easily uh, dupe the system into giving you multiple codes. It wasn't really checked. So uh, we would always redeem multiple play sets uh, of cards. Never, never enough to make a profit off of, but always enough to have like a full set to play with. So <laughs> you were white hat the coast doesn't hear this. Yeah, you were doing them a favor, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean they definitely did change it. I imagine we weren't the only ones because they they changed the way the redemption policy works after a couple of years. So if Wizards of the Coast hears this, uh, I'm deeply sorry, and hopefully statute limitations for getting extra pieces of cardboard has elapsed. <laughs> yeah, man. I, um, I, I also had, uh, some, some escapades as, as a youngster with, with code. And there were times when, uh, when I had some, some pretty interesting opportunities to, to, to hack into systems and, and try out things. I mean, it's, it is, uh, it is a world of really interesting, cool stuff that, uh, that we can do and probably shouldn't. Oh yeah. And I, I never got the. I, I don't fall into the category of people that started off as like white hat hacking, right? Um, by the time I got exposed to it, it was it was pretty robust systems. So, um, but because I started off with embedded things, there were a lot of like exploitable loopholes and like memory debugging you could get from dev boards. Like you could dump out programs that people had flashed onto devices. That's less about, I guess, security measures. You're not going to get anything gainful from that, but it was helpful yeah. for reverse engineering stuff. Yeah, yeah. No, it, it's amazing that um, that that even even younger people can can really start thinking that level of abstract about how to how to solve a problem. You see a goal in front of you, and it might be something nefarious, like 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 trying to generate extra codes or 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 hacking into a, a server at a college or something. But you see a goal in front of you, and um, and you know you use the information that's available to you. You trial and error. You uh, get a, get a knock on the front door from the feds, and 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 then you learn, <laughs> and you uh, and you get new skills, and and hopefully you make yeah, it and out of out of all that with your with your life. And maybe in a vein that's less risky to your permanent record. Um, I've always compared it to like video game mechanics. So there's a term like min maxing, right, where you sort of exploit a loophole or a certain mechanic in a game to sort of push the limits of what can and should be done. So it happens a lot in Dungeons and Dragons, um, but most every game has it. Um, and I think that there's a strong parallel there for the kind of abstract thinking you need to leverage that as well as like the kind of abstract thing you can benefit from problem solving in general and in programming. Yeah. So, um, if, if we got any, any, uh, youngsters, any, yeah, they don't, they don't call themselves youngsters anymore, but if we got any, any younger <laughs> people out there that are, uh, that are kind of into hacking this or that, or trying to make things do things they shouldn't do. Um, you might have a bright future ahead of you as a programmer, right? I, I, I think that uh, um, I see a lot of kids out there trying to mod Minecraft and, and, and hack different video games and things like that. And uh, I, I see a lot of potential for, for our future, not, 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 for, uh, not to perpetuate Minecraft uh, in, in our adulthood, but, but to be able to actually branch out and, and do some cool stuff, maybe even start a career. Starts with Minecraft and then you move on to software development maybe. Yeah, I mean, I think there's uh, there's a whole bundle of content to unpack in that vein, um, and maybe we'll talk about it more later for like, things I think are future and promising. But 
uh, game developers have really opened up themselves to community modding in recent years. And there are some great examples I could give here, but even Minecraft to stick with it. Um, there are extensions to mod Minecraft that let you run Lua, which is like the de facto scripting language for games. So I know, you know, several teenagers that don't really understand what they're doing from a programming standpoint, but they know that it automatically moves blocks for them in Minecraft. And it's a great springboard, right? Exactly. I was going to say, not necessarily a uh, shameless plug for me, but as like a subject of programming style games that are fun, there's a publisher called Zachatronics that has a whole slew of these games that are not uh, necessarily kid-oriented, but like a lot of fun even to play as an adult. But they're very, very niche games. They're very like puzzle-oriented. Um, one of their publishings is like a full assembly interpreter you have to solve puzzles with. Huh. So it's interesting. Uh, so you mentioned uh, future future of, of programming. So what are some things that excite you about the future of software development? Uh, so I don't know if excite is the right word. I think that there are things that I definitely am keeping an eye on for like the impact they're going to have. So there's been a real uptick in low code and no code solutions, right? Mm -hmm. So you have a bunch of um, what you see is what you get editors, right? And then you have solutions like Zapier, which offers no code automation. You got GitHub Copilot that was recently a big buzz. Um, and I think that for people who are already senior, when those sort of concepts really develop, it's not going to impact you or influence you much, right? If you're a senior, you're probably tackling problems that are not covered by low code or no code. Yeah. I do think that it's going to have a bigger imp market impact on juniors, um, even mids, because now you have like a lower technical threshold required to do some of the simpler things, right? Mm -hmm. It's harder to find a freelance job one off for building a website when you can go like somebody can go to WordPress or uh, what have you and spin it up very quickly. Right. Well, these these solutions, I mean, they're obviously getting better. Like bubble IO is is it's amazing. It's it's really, really cool. Bubble is you should check it out. Bubble.io. Uh, it's just a it's a no code application builder. And then you've got things like retool. Uh, Retool is a, is one that's low code. You, you kind of uh, they, it's meant to be built by a developer, but it's got a lot of things out of the box. I mean, th there's some really cool stuff coming out. Um, should programmers? You mentioned junior developers, but um, are are you thinking that this doesn't really even affect senior developers and architects out there? Not really, um, at least not from my standpoint. So. It, it is my perception and experience, and this is almost entirely anecdotal, that seniors and up, so leveling changes in a lot of places. When I say seniors, I mean somebody who's above mid, generically. Yeah. Typically deal with problems that are more abstract or specific that low-code and no-code solutions can't tackle very well. Mm -hmm. um, they're usually at the precipice of people transitioning off of them, or they're like in from the ground floor handling stuff that is bigger, right? To my knowledge, there are no low code or no code systems for uh, handling like service mesh stuff, right? Or standard yeah. multi-tenant architecture, regional databases. Um, a, a lot of the things that like senior level people have to solution. Yeah. But I do think that like the majority of use cases, right? Every Joe Schmo with a small business um, or Jane Doe that's opened up like an Etsy shop, right? selling stuff doesn't need a junior developer freelance contractor anymore. They can just go and make them a site on WordPress and achieve the same effect for way cheaper. So it removes experience opportunities. 
Well, so I used to work for a, um, a large healthcare corporation in Nashville, and I, I won't mention their name, but um, I, I spent pretty much all my time, all the years that I was there, I spent rebuilding and rescuing departments from access programs, applications that were created <laughs> in Microsoft Access and Excel. Yep. And so that's why I say low-code and no-code solutions have been around a long time. And some companies, multi-billion dollar companies, are, are basically built. Their foundation is on top of these, these solutions that have been around a long time, or maybe not. But either way, they're, they are solving their own problems in ways that they, in the most agile way that they can, just by throwing it together in an Excel spreadsheet. And then they might go five years running off of that and all, all these, all, all this data is being generated by an Excel spreadsheet and, and, and saved. And it's, it's a, it's actually a big, horrible mess if you, if you, if it gets out of hand. But, uh, I mean, I, I remember having to, to convert all kinds of business concepts from Excel and, and access into, into real software. So this has been going on a long time. It, it almost feels like, like companies are, um, they, they, they're, like I said, they're solving a problem in the fastest way they can possibly do it. And maybe they use bubble. I don't know. Maybe they use access. But then eventually, I call it a, a real developer, is going to have to come in and actually save the day and rebuild the thing. Yeah. And so some of these tools are, uh, they're very welcoming to power users, right? Like writing your own scripts. So even to stick with like a concrete example, Excel, you can write Python scripts in Excel. So you can do very powerful things. Um, I have some friends of mine that, started up their own small business and they were all like ex uh, accountants and executives and very, very proficient with Excel. So they built their entire, entire point of sale system in Excel full of buttons and inventory logistics and everything. That's scary. Um, and then avoided having to pay a subscription for you for a point of service system. Um, that's redundant, but point is they avoided paying for the point of sale system and it was great. I mean, it worked for them. Wow. Um, but I also think that, to your point of Microsoft Access and Excel, um, there are sort of phases companies go through, right? And how long they stay each phase is sort of indeterminate. Startups really just need a website and it means to broadcast themselves and marketing and between Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and uh, WordPress and all these sites, you can get that. And then as you sort of grow your user base or if you're going after a niche market, maybe you need to start with some custom tooling. And then eventually you get big enough that your processes and your standards like Maybe you have an internal dev tools team that builds out your own little framework and scaffolding and bootstrapping system. And so then you have your own sort of low code, no code, fast start options internally. Yep. So it's a, it's a weird cycle to go through. I don't think it's going to, I'm not worried about Copilot taking my job, mostly because Copilot is iffy at best in its current state. But um, I do think that it's going to, it's going to do interesting things for getting into the job market mm. um, on a more positive note. Things I am excited about. So the pandemic sucked in all rights yeah. for everybody, but it has really promoted remote opportunities. Uh, and that's had like a nice ripple effect where companies that were paying tons for a good developer out in the Bay Area or in the Northeast are now paying less tons, but still an appropriately like big bump up for people living out like Nashville or even in Kansas um, to pick on Kansas as a remote destination where <laughs> They can afford the same skill set for cheaper, which is still a net result salary increase increase yeah. for those developers. So I think that's really cool. Um, I'm maybe not as optimistic about it as some of my peers, but I do think it's going to 
cause a wave to go up across the nation. So yeah, it'll be interesting to see what 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 will happen. I I know that the market has changed drastically. Uh, it's it's way harder to um, to to pay the same thing that we used to pay uh, as 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 hiring managers, and uh, a lot of other things have changed too. Just uh, the recruiting the recruiting uh, landscape has has changed drastically. Is a double edged sword like so? Smaller businesses can afford to now entice talent from places like Facebook and Google, which have stated they're not going to support remote working. Um, but also those same smaller companies and like lower cost of living areas now have to compete with bigger companies going after their candidates from a candidate's perspective, right? You're no longer competing with the 30 other people you graduated boot camp with you competing with 300 or 3000 other people yeah. across the nation entering the market yeah. at the same time. Or around the world. Yeah. It's, it's crazy. Yeah. So, um, Hey, speaking of, of bubble IO and retool and, and things like that, um, a lot of businesses and, and we developers, we, we find ourselves in the kind of in the middle of decision-making processes a lot of times. Um, and, and when it comes to building or buying, like, uh, th it seems like a very businessy decision, but a lot of times the business around us, if they're not technical, they look to us, uh, as technologists to decide or to help them decide whether to buy or build. And, um, and I, I think that that's, that's something, that's a skill that, that not a lot of junior developers have. Um, I, have you, have you seen that in, in many junior developers? Uh, sort of. So I've, I've seen the beginnings of it in junior developers. So from my perspective, build versus buy and like, uh, technical decision-making skills like that start off as lower, more concrete skills for, uh, like weighing a hacky solution versus a long-term solution. Um, and then as you gain experience and exposure, that same sort of skill set is applied for building a solution versus buying a solution, right? Weighing short-term, long-term benefits. And, um, I think someone said it once that one of the most like senior traits in engineering and developers is foresight, like the ability to consider mm. the future state of applications and, you know, benefits to that future state versus benefits now and cost in either direction. So I've seen juniors come in and be very mindful about like, oh, if I do this, what happens in this edge case? And I think that's sort of the same sort of uh, thinking and process I apply just to larger decisions, right? I'm not weighing how does this affect this model or this chunk of code. I'm weighing how does it affect this service or this group of services. Exactly. Um, have you noticed a trend in, or have you... Have you noticed any characteristics that junior developers have that give them access to that foresight that uh, that is often so prevalent in senior developers? Um, e sort of, and I keep throwing these vague answers. Sort of, yeah, kind of. Um, okay. I'll just say definitively, yes, I have noticed specific characteristics. Uh, so, as a junior, more often than not, entering a workforce, your first maybe a year or so of content is going to be working off a backlog, having very little input or say on yeah. like product decision-making skills at a strategic or a technical level. Um, you're just going to sort of be handed tickets and work them. And you may look at the requirements and that's it. Um, curiosity is probably the best way to describe what I think leads into this. Um, and it can be even sort of an emulated curiosity where you receive a ticket, it's got a requirement set in it, and then sort of digging into the why that ticket needs to be worked that way. Um, yeah. If you're updating 
uh, say like you have a generic user model and you're updating permissions to have role association, right? So like an admin has different permission sets than like a super user, than a staff user, than an internal user. Digging into the why and what those permission sets are and what they mean to things outside the scope of what you're working can be very enlightening. Um, it also has a risk to be overwhelming. So I've seen it gone the other way where juniors get so bogged down in wondering what the purpose is behind their ticket that they struggle to get it done in a timely fashion. And that can reflect poorly more for the business side than the engineering side. Um, yeah, just like digging into the context around tickets is, is a big, big start. So is there anything, any advice that you can give to, to, um, non-senior developers that could, um, could help them dig out some of that context that, that, that might not just be right there laid out for them? Uh, yes. So if you have log systems, if you have access to logging and reporting and APMs, so application performance monitoring or health monitoring tools, um, become very familiar with them. Watch them, question why they show up there, uh, notice those trends. Um, the user interface, like graph and data visualization, tends to be much more friendly for building out those senses for things than I have like just looking through JSON logs. Um, so we use Sentry, New Relic, Splunk, Logstash, Kibana, whatever comes up across your way. Companies usually have something in place where you can go and look at maybe performance trends of the web page over time, or you can look at error aggregation um, and familiarizing yourself like where areas that receive more bug tickets than others, areas that propagate more tech debt. Um, they're sort of like whenever you see a red flag for a code or a code smell as it's called, where you're like, oh, this looks awkward. Don't immediately just jump to judging. This is bad. I should change it. Be curious about why is it this way? What's the standing context behind it? Um, be very, very inquisitive. Uh, a lot of juniors and even mids and senior people have a lot of nerve around asking questions. And especially when you start a new job, you should not be timid about that at all. Uh, I read a exactly. metric once, I don't know how true it is. They have like 60 days to get somebody's unbiased opinion when they start a new job before they become sort of indoctrinated to the company. Huh. So asking those questions and putting forth these challenges on code is a really good feedback loop for the people that are already there, right? Don't be rude about it, but. So I've gotten the impression that a lot of um, newer developers or even developers that have a few years in their belt, they may feel like if they ask a question or if they, if they act or if they reveal at all that they don't know what's going on with something or they, they don't, they haven't, divined the motivation behind a card. They haven't figured it out on their own. That if they reveal that to their coworkers, then they're going to um, be at a disadvantage somehow. You know, it starts that imposter syndrome. Have, have you noticed that, that people have this feeling? Or, or do you, I, I don't think it is really true. I think that I, as a senior, I feel great when a junior asks something. Uh. So let me preface this with the crazy thing about imposter syndrome is it affects 95% of people, right? Yeah. Almost everybody thinks they don't belong in the group. Um, so definitely don't like acknowledging that and being aware of it doesn't get rid of the feeling, but it can help you with getting over the blocker from asking that question. But to your point, um, no, I've never judged somebody for asking questions. There's some asterisks there that as long as you've made due diligence on trying to answer it yourself, right? I don't want to be a Google for you, but mm -hmm. 
if you have done your best efforts and you said, Hey, I checked here, I checked here, I checked here. Do you have any suggestions for where to look next? Right. Or can you help me answer this? Um, and as far as like feeling awkward about doing it earlier today, I asked my coworker what the difference between imports and taxes was for JavaScript and TypeScript. So like, that's a pretty bare level thing that probably juniors out of bootcamp can answer for you. And I just don't know it. So that's totally acceptable. I would say that, um, so some, some people might be wondering, okay, how do I know whether I have done enough homework? And, um, I'll, I'll give a, I'll give you my litmus test and you can tell me, Will, whether you think it's right or not. So, um, if anybody ever sends you one of those, let me Google that for you links, then you might (laughs) need to be putting in more homework. Yeah. Um, and like, I think that's obviously a good indicator that maybe you should have done better. But I also think that like everybody has those occasionally. Um, w- one thing that is concrete to sort of preface like proactive approach on this. Um, I had a hiring manager once that sent out there like manager style doc. Um, and it was really informative, but one of the things that's like resonated and stuck with me is not to make your problem, other people's problems, mm-hmm. right? So you will run into issues that you cannot solve by yourself but don't just offload it to the other person, bring them solutions. So mm. as like, if I'm having issue implementing this, I might say, Hey, Brian, uh, I've tried X, Y, and Z to resolve this issue. I think that A, B, and C are viable answers, but I'm not sure which one of those conventions is best or is standard mm. here. Can you shed some insight? Right. so now I've limited your That's really good. task here from just generically wide open what do I tell this person to now you just have to compare A, B, and C. And if those are wrong, like I've demonstrated to you that I've tried. So let me see if I can repackage that. Um, so I, I like this a lot. So as a rule of thumb, junior developers out there, you need to don't bring me your problems, bring me your solutions and let me give you my feedback. Yeah, it is much easier for me to compare different things that you have presented to me than it is for me to just pull something out of the ether without context. Um, And that's not even for juniors. I've had seniors have the same issue. Yeah, It it is just a, it's a great thing. I think the blog article I got this from originally compared uh, to like everybody's carrying around a bunch of monkeys on their back. And by just asking someone for help with a problem with like no other context or preface or solutioning, you've put your monkey on their back. But uh if you present them solutions, you've basically lined them up and said, which one of these is best. So, um, and that's a very, very rough paraphrase of it. But point is, yes, present solutions, ask for opinions rather than ask for solutions. Yeah, that's awesome. That's really good feedback, a good wisdom for, uh, for all developers out there. Um, there are often these conversations that are really problematic where I just bring you a problem and Hey, solve it for me. Yeah, and I, I I don't want to miss the emphasis on this. Also presenting the things you have tried is a big, big bonus, right? Yeah. So not only just, hey, which of these three solutions is best, but also throwing in there, I've tried these things already. Yeah. Um, one, that helps me set context for stuff that you've approached. Two, it, you may present something that I'm going to give you the answer on, right? Yeah. So if you say you try, you've tried X, Y, Z, how about ABC? I might go, oh, when you tried X, you did that wrong. That's definitely the solution. Mm. So that sort of reflective insight can be very helpful. 
Yeah. Yeah. And it also feels better to help somebody that has already tried to help themselves to an, to an extent. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, I think that's probably the biggest piece of advice I can give for like getting over that hump of asking questions. It's always okay to ask questions. Just when you ask questions, be mindful and considerate of the person you're asking questions to and try to present them your ideas on it. Well, so I want to go back to this theme of foresight because I think I think this is big. This is a this is something that I think uh, all developers, whether you call yourself a senior, junior, mid, whatever you call yourself, foresight is is a big um, is a big characteristic that we all need to strive for. Uh, of course, we can't be fortune tellers. We're not going to be able to tell the the, the future. Um, we, but being able to sense what's coming, maybe because of some experience or because of uh, we've we've run this through our heads and we we kind of understand uh, if we if we do this this way, then it's going to cause this chain reaction, and in in five months we're going to be doing this. Uh, that foresight is is super uh, super useful as a senior developer. Um, I have a feeling though, sometimes it can get out of hand. And I think that especially if our foresight bone or our foresight muscle is not super well developed, then we might get into situations where, where we, we maybe try to apply it in too many places. And I'm specifically thinking about like optimizations. So I just learned, let's just say, I just learned how to, um, how to optimize uh, database queries. And so then all 300 database queries that I've got, I start optimizing the crap out of them. Is that a good thing? I, I'm, I'm asking a rhetorical question, of course. Uh, tell me about that. Yeah, uh, so early optimization kills more projects than late optimization does, right? If you are, Dealing with an issue with late optimization, that means you have somebody using your project and they are just suffering from poor performance. If you deal with early optimization, that means you have nobody using your project and <laughs> you are suffering for it, not the yeah. end customer. Um, but no, uh, database queries, another big one that I see a lot is uh, user authentication, right? So especially with the recent like hacks with like middleware attacks and um, supply chain distribution issues, security has been like had a big spotlight on it. Um, and so people have this like frame of mind that basic auth is bad. And that if I mm -hmm. try to build something with basic auth, I'm a terrible developer. And that's not true, <laughs> right? Getting an MVP up and running is more important than getting a secured project that will never run. Um, so to that end, uh, there's tons of places it can pop up. Authentication, security, performance issues, all these are uh, areas where like be mindful of what you're writing. But if you run into an issue and you think this could be better, make a note of it, right? Maybe like keep it to do in your project and then just move on. Like add it to do, move from basic auth to auth to zero or open ID or whatever, and then just keep going, get it working first. Uh, being able to appropriately MVP or proof of concept projects is a very, very valuable skill, especially as you move up to seniors level where you have to, you know, make these technical design decisions, right? And you want to be able to demonstrate yeah. that these things would work one way or the other. So like, uh, I may need to build out like a small instance showing that Elastisearch or Elastistack is a great example for search engines. 
I don't want to build out a full application showing that. I want to build out just enough to show it's viable, present it to the larger tech audience, get approval, and then build it out. It's time for you to take control. Hey, Byron here, coming at you from a different place and time to put a pause to this podcast and call attention to something really important. You've probably thought at times that it's really hard to get traction in your own learning and growth as a software developer. You should join the Dev Amplifier, the mastery growth system for software developers. In the Dev Amplifier, you'll receive weekly coaching and quests and assessments and check-ins all designed to help you grow from whatever level you're at as a software developer to the next level and amplify your career. It's only $83 a month, so stop everything else that you're doing right now, pause this podcast, and head over to my website to sign up for the Dev Amplifier right now. It'll be the best decision you make all day. Now, let's get back to the Driven Developer Podcast. Now, um, some of us, uh, I, and I, I work with, with multiple clients and end up with multiple teams going at the same time, not me programming, of course, but um, my, my teams have a different client, each one. And each client has his or her, um, her own desires, uh, hopes and dreams for this product, their own timetable, their own, uh, their own ex- expectations as far as level of quality, level of performance, um, and whether they know they have those expectations or not, they may, they may have opinions that they, they, they're just latent. They're, they're going to find yeah. the opinion when they see the thing that they don't like. Yeah, this like inbuilt bias. Well, yeah, yeah. One of those things has been optimization. Um, and so I believe that, especially as we get better at, at being really strong software developers, we need to get better at working with our clients or whoever the stakeholder is to find out what are those expectations ahead of time so that we either help set those expectations or we know to, to, to meet their expectations. And I think this also has something to do with foresight. Have you ever had a, a, a time where, where you've got these very technical decisions, but you start to feel like you, you really should uh, run them by the stakeholder? Yeah, I mean, loosely defined tickets is one of the most recurrent uh, jokes in software development, right? Uh, where like a product manager specialist just says, hey, build me a website, make it go fast. And then yeah. you're left to suss out the details by yourself. Um, yeah, no, I've, I've had to deal with this a couple of times. And there's, at least not that I have found, there's no right way to go about dealing with it. These sort of soft, intangible skills for dealing with people uh, and defining requirements are hard. You without being you know, psychic um, and knowing exactly what it is that they want and translating it. Um, in fact, it's sort of the reason that drives like project managers and business analyst positions as a whole is being that sort of interface between developers and um, the business generically. Mm, to make sure that everybody's asking the right questions, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, and then it gets even more complicated in like larger companies where you have multiple projects you have to deal with and maybe have different standards or languages or frameworks or stakeholders. Uh, it's an, it's a large number of, uh, exposed faces you have to deal with. Um, so as far as actually going about dealing with them, um, time boxes are key. 
So, and not just in this space, but just like generically learning to time box appropriately is a very, very valuable skill. Yeah. Um, so this may show up as you set a one hour limit for yourself for trying to solve a problem. If you can't, you ask a coworker, you may set a two hour time limit for yourself for reviewing and grooming backlogs. And if you get to the end of it, you've made low progress, you'll schedule another meeting. Um, whatever shape it takes, setting time boxes around content can drastically improve your efficiency as a developer, which is one of the big hallmarks for like being senior level is being more productive, right? Um, and the secret is not necessarily doing more, it's just being more efficient with your time. Right. Uh, so with product management, setting aside time to like time boxing, meeting with the stakeholder for 30 minutes to discuss an issue. And then after that, you take notes during, you go back, you review those notes, you weigh options, you, you know, maybe make an action item list during the meeting, like things that you're going to follow up definitive outcomes, not like generically find a good framework, but concretely find a framework that supports async operations because yep. performance is hyper important. Um, and then follow up on those later. So you want to minimize the amount of interactions you have with product stakeholders in reviewing tickets, because that sort of friction can be like a bad impression back towards the stakeholders. But whenever you do have those interactions, you want to make sure that you have an agenda, you have desired outcomes and you take something away from it. And also be very, very strict about boxing that time. If you schedule 30 minutes and you come up on the 25 minute mark and you still feel like you have a lot of content to go over, take your action items and announce that you're going to make another meeting, give yourself at least two days to reflect on what you discussed in that one and then follow up with it. That's good. So when you're in a conversation like that with those stakeholders, um, do you think it's okay to bring them in on maybe not the technical nitty gritty of everything, but those decisions? Like, is it, is it okay to ask a stakeholder, uh, what are the, the functions of this website that need to be the highest, highest performance or highest priority as far as performance optimizations? Mm. Okay. So I'm going to maybe rephrase this a bit back at you because I want to be very clear on the delineation. I, I am of the opinion that the less technical you can get with project management or business stakeholders, the better, because that is a rabbit hole of confusion and frustration for both parties. Um, technical proficiency and competency is not an expectation I carry to discussing anything with project stakeholders. Yeah. That said, prioritization for like business prioritization is 100% a project management and stakeholder obligation, right? So if we were working this out and you were the project stakeholder, I might know how to implement what you want, but only you can say how valuable a certain feature is. So you should, they should definitely be involved in discussing the priority of work, but they should not be discussed in like the technical details, right? So I wouldn't ask which parts of the site are most valuable to be performant. I would ask for features of the site. And then once developed, if an issue was raised about the performance of like the search box or the map lookup or whatever it was, I would then say, okay, how does the performance increase here compare as a priority ranking to adding an, a mailing list feature? So um, smallest unit of work you can do for any given thing and then work iteratively and rely on business for prioritization. And that's feels like a very paraphrase of agile, but 
Yeah, yeah, and I, I think you're I think you're right on um, the the performance thing. I've found it, it can be problematic sometimes. So, so you and I, we both agree that that we should avoid this premature optimization. But sometimes, especially non-technical product owners or project managers or, or stakeholders, they don't always understand why, why you might intentionally not optimize certain things. To them, it might be like, well, duh, of course that should be faster. And, and, and then when you say, well, okay, we can do X, Y, and Z to make it faster. Or you can say, without the X, Y, and Z, you can just say, yeah, we can make it faster. Then they might have this feeling of like, well, uh, why didn't you just automatically make it faster? They don't always get premature optimization or, or the, uh, the the desire to avoid premature optimization. So what would you as a senior developer say to those stakeholders to help put them at ease or to prepare them ahead of time? Uh, what would we, how would we communicate this to them? I would do my best up front to not mention to them that I could do those things to make it faster. <laughs> Um, because once you've mentioned that you can do those the things, Scotty effect, right? In Star Trek, yeah, it's it's going to the second you mention that you could do them, it's going to become an expectation that you do do them. Um, so, say hypothetically, I know I can make my database queries better. I don't upfront because I'm interested in getting the feature out first. So I get the feature out and we'll say it's like localization because this is a real thing I've had to deal with before, translations and localization. And we were rolling out to a different country. So I built out the feature for translations and localizations. I know that it's sub-performant, but I just need to get it out there because I know that we launch in, uh, I don't know, Liechtenstein in two months. Um, so I get it up and going, it rolls out, everybody's happy. And then I get feedback that like, oh, hey, when I am browsing the site in whatever language Liechtenstein uses, the fictional place from Knight's Tale. Um, it's very slow. One, as a tangent here, don't ever take it's very slow at face value. The eye mm. test is very deceiving because there are so many things that go into that. That is exactly the kind of thing that tools like New Relic and other application performance monitors are there for monitoring yeah. the time it takes for requests to get processed and database queries to execute. And the instrumentation for those is very straightforward to set up. I won't say easy, but it's straightforward to set up. And like, if somebody says something is slow, ask them to provide data to back that up. New Relic dashboards, Splunk logs, whatever. You, you need an objective measure. It's also interesting uh, that a, a loading spinner could totally change their their opinion about how fast something is loading or a placeholder. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like the UI experience is a, is a big contributor. And that's why I mean, like, don't trust the eye test, right? Maybe the internet's hiccuping because their ISP's got a different provider going through. Maybe they're on like some load test server. There's any number of things that could go into it. So being able to objectively measure like response times is big. Um, so two, I know me that I could make this faster. I've known I could make it faster for a while, right? Maybe even I made a ticket in the backlog to make it faster whenever I did the ticket the first time. Product doesn't need to know that. Product told me that this is the highest priority to get this feature out. I said, okay, now I'm getting feedback that it could be faster. I say, okay, well, we have a ticket to the backlog to make it faster. And that's it. That You don't need to go into details with them. Over-explaining can cause you a lot of headaches, right? If asked for details, like if like maybe you have a technical person in the room with you and they're like, oh, how can we make this faster? Talk to the technical person, tell them, 
oh, you know, we could do pre-select queries instead of prefetch queries. I don't know. Um, but product should not have a vested interest in the technical implementation, just the result of. Yeah. And if they want something faster, then they'll probably say, hey, we this should be faster. And then the developers can say, instead of saying, okay, we'll do X, Y, Z, A, B, C, the developers can just say, okay, now we know that that's a non-functional requirement of yours. Thank you very much. We're going to go and work on it. Yep. And then to take a situation where like maybe you don't know that you can do it faster. So say you inherit some code base, right? You're a new hire, somebody left, and now it's your responsibility. And then you get complaints about it being slow or malperformant. It is not wise to try and ideate in that meeting, right? With the mm, stakeholder. Yeah. You don't want to try and talk through solutions there. What you want to do is then propose creating a research ticket or like a spike project or just some sort of placeholder in your sprint or Kanban board to represent looking into and investigating that issue. Don't try to make like from the hip assessments about what you can do. Don't try to discuss it in a meeting where that's not the point. Just say, that's a great thing. Thank you for bringing it up. We'll make a ticket in the backlog to look into it. And the result of that ticket should be the technical implementation, like what you should do. Yeah. Yeah. Well, hey, let's, uh, let's switch gears. What's your current title where you're working right now? Uh, I am a staff engineer. Staff engineer. Have you ever been in management? Uh, sort of. Um, I've been a team lead and sort of dabbled my toes in management because the place I was working at the time had a deficit deficit, deficit of managers. So responsibility was sort of shared between uh, a man who was a very good mentor and friend of mine and I. So he was officially the manager. I was a team lead for a team. The other team he managed did not have a team lead and there was only one manager for both of them. So I occasionally covered. Got it. So you're a pretty strong senior developer. You've got a reputation amongst your, your, uh, your coworkers and in the industry. Uh, do you aspire to get into management? Uh, sort of. Um, I, I would label myself as atypical in that I don't have a strong opinion on whether or not I want to go down the management or the individual contributor ladder. I like solving problems mm. generically. So whether that is a people management, project management, code problem is irrelevant to me. Um, I've done work as like sort of a research and development engineer where I had to take six months and attempt to spin up whole new product lines. I've spent time as a team lead where I had to help reorg a company internally. I've spent time as like a standalone individual contributor where I was sole maintainer responsibility for a couple of projects. I've played support engineer, SRE. I've worn many hats and I like all yeah. of them to a degree. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's all solve problem solving in the end and it, it's all whether you're coding people or you're coding code or you're scripting or whatever you're doing, it's, it's solving problems. Do you think, um, do you think that, 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 uh, every senior developer out there should, should try to become a manager? Absolutely not. Um, so people skills are exactly that. They are skills, right? These sort of, uh, I think they're referred to as soft skills, the ability to like hold a conversation, to talk about sensitive subjects, to provide constructive criticism, to identify conflict and friction between other people. These are separate skills from identifying performance issues in code or 
resolving service mesh issues that they're, and they're not always present in the same person or easy to teach, right? In the same way that it might take one person a year to learn SQL comfortably and another person to take a month to learn SQL comfortably. Learning to manage can be a different timeline and level of pain for different people. So I've met and worked with people that were great individual contributors that absolutely should not lead a team. And I've yeah. met the inverse. I've met with people that were absolutely fantastic managers, but putting them back in a hands-on IC situation would be a net detriment to the company. Mm, and it's yeah. sort of on the individual to sort of assess where you want to go with that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I totally agree. I, I think that that it's uh, we, we, our world is full of many different types of people and developers are 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 also varied inside the, the industry. Not every developer... Um, is leadership material, or not every not every developer should consider themselves um, like required to go down that road. Every uh, every developer has the ability to, to to solve a problem, but not not necessarily with uh, with management. And and also all of that HR and leadership and everything that that you have to do as a manager, it's it's very different. I mean, it's, you're still solving problems, but it's very different from what kinds of problems you're solving as as a software developer. Um, I just, I think that, that, um, that people should, should think twice before automatically promoting senior developers to management. Yeah. And so your mileage may vary with this because different companies had different ladders and paths for progressing on this, but for anybody considering it, like if you're in a situation where like maybe you're a senior now and you're weighing, do I want to go IC? Do I want to go management leadership? Um, Team lead is sort of where you have to make that decision, in my experience. You can be a team lead and not a people manager, right? Mm -hmm. You can lead the team from a technical standpoint, and then you can get exposure to people management without being responsible for it. So you would have no direct reports except maybe a junior. Um, you would just sort of be in a nice spot to dip your toes in the water, so to speak. Um, yeah, it's a good point. It's also not a permanent position. A lot of people have this mindset that once you go into management or IC, you cannot go the other way. Mm -hmm. I have experienced personally, and I have watched it happen more, making lateral shifts, right? So if somebody is a team lead, they get promoted to manager, they miss being hands-on with code. It's not maybe necessarily that they don't like working with people, it is like being more involved. I've seen that lateral shift over to like a solutions architect. So it can go either way. Uh, the biggest thing you're going to run into is just what your company has to find for career progression in ladders, right? right? Smaller businesses, startups, it's way more flexible, but also you'll probably have to wear multiple hats anyway. Larger enterprise companies pretty often have a concrete definition of this is your career path, but yeah. there's also a process for moving from one side to the other. Right, right. I had a, a mentor once that uh, that I hadn't talked to him for a while and I, I, I messaged him on LinkedIn and said, hey, how you doing? And he's like, um, yeah, I just started a new position. I was like, oh, okay, what, what's the new position? He said, yeah, I got demoted to management. Uh, <laughs> he, was, he was a developer and got demoted to management. Uh, so it's, it's, it's not, always, not always the path that we need to take. Uh, we, we can, there are lots of different paths that, that we can take as developers. Sometimes you might be a, dev, a software developer and you need to move to, to SRE. Or you might be an SRE and you want to move to, uh, to QA. You never know. Um, it, there are all kinds of, uh, things that we can do as software developers in, in this industry. And it doesn't, doesn't always have to lead us to, to management. So what yeah. do you wish, 
Uh, what do you wish software developers would just get better at? <laughs> oh, man. Um, that's a loaded question. I'm going to offend somebody in the next three seconds. Oh, do it. Go for it. Communication and uh, acceptance and uh, self-reflection for three big ones. Communication could take the form of being able to talk to your peers, being able to communicate to juniors and not assuming they have knowledge, being willing to work with product management and realize that you're all working for the same company and have the same end goal, whether mm -hmm. that's you want to make the company better because it's mission related or you want to make more money when the company profits because you have investment. Um, it could be more descriptive on tickets, right? Like don't write tickets assuming that you're going to be the one working it. Maybe it gets handed yeah. off to somebody else or you onboard a new person and they don't know what you mean. Uh, yep. lots of room and I, I am guilty of these as well, but like, these are things that are always room for improvement. Um, the second one was like open and mindfulness. Um, there's sort of this like joke in the community about the friction and tension between like different languages or frameworks, right? Like JavaScript gets dumped on a lot. PHP gets dumped on a lot. Yeah. Um, there's a mentality of like project managers are just frustrating to deal with that mm -hmm. the business is out to get you. And sometimes this is true, right? There's a there's a grain of salt to be considered with these, but I also think that approaching it with a negative mindset is not beneficial in any way. Probably, uh, it probably perpetuates it too. Yeah, so like approach it with an open-minded, right? Be welcoming to people. Um, I, I have a blurb I'll throw on the end here that will probably also offend people. But uh, the third one was, being like reflective and open-minded about it, right? Like you're going to do things wrong, whether you forgot, you don't know, or it's a new thing. And that's totally fine. To err is human, right? I would also at this point say to err is software because humans wrote it. It's yeah. going to make bad things happen. It's okay. Live and learn. Yeah. Um, we're lucky to be in a field where the feedback, feedback loop is very tight, right? And there's all the resources to get better are usually free. So it's super, super beneficial. So being closed minded and like not receptive to criticism is rough. Uh, I found that this most often takes the form of being defensive about code you wrote, right? Mm. It's like you wrote a project and you might not even realize you're doing it. Like you might've wrote a project three months ago. And then whenever you look at it, you're like, oh, why did I do this? But then if somebody else comes along and goes, hey, why did you do that? You're immediately like, defending yourself or upset uh -huh. that they would question that. So it's okay. Yeah. That need to defend is probably coming from some insecurity that came from imposter syndrome at some point. Yeah. And to circle back to point one, if you're the person on the other side of that asking why it was done, try to be tactful about it. That's what I would say. Yeah. Understanding that you're, you're probably attacking somebody's, um, uh, masterpiece that <laughs> they, they wrote this <laughs> and they're like, yes, I have finally arrived as a coder of, of, of high esteem. And this is the most beautiful code ever. And then you're coming in and like, why'd you do that? Why didn't you just do X, Y, Z? Yeah. Yeah. And it's also, um, like even if they're attacking a masterpiece to switch it out of software, like it's something that maybe they're aware of is not great and you're pointing it out. So mm. like, like if you were a kid in high school and you had really bad acne, like you're aware that you have bad acne. If somebody comes up to you and says, Hey, have you tried whatever that uh, popular acne cream is, right? You're immediately made aware of that somebody 
yeah, you're immediately made aware that somebody else is aware you have acne and it's not a pleasant experience. So, but it's, it's coming from a place of not malice, right? Like you're trying to help them. So, um, and then it's like a final footnote and I don't have like a concrete developmental thing to build on here. Um, I will just stay that I think that there is a fine line between being very proud and confident in what you can do and also being narcissistic or egotistical about how valuable you are. So I have seen a lot of engineers yeah. doubt themselves going into interviews and you shouldn't like just be honest. And if you're not a great fit, that's fine. Um, but I've also seen a lot of engineers who are like, without us, the business wouldn't succeed. We deserve $2 million in salary. And I don't support that mentality at all. So um, yeah. I also would go out that say that like, there's a difference between being a developer or programmer and being a software engineer. Um, and I know that's an, another one that gets a lot of flack for people, but um, I think that they are different and it takes both. Yeah. And, and I, I like the distinction uh, that, that a lot of people make between uh, software engineer and software developer or programmer or coder. Um, tell me, tell me what you, what you think is the difference. So a developer or a programmer might be someone who is like very comfortable with executing a practical implementation of code. An engineer is someone who has to do more like design and consideration for larger systems. And maybe the way to like compare these are like an often comparison I've heard is like mechanics versus mechanical engineers, right? A mechanic the industrial or automotive or whatever is someone who can get out and tool and understands individual systems and knows that like this part affects that part. And this is how I fix it. And this is how I make upgrades. A mechanical engineer is someone who has to design the system, right? There's nothing in front of them to begin with and they have to just work for it. And that's not a strict, hard and fast comparison, but I, I would like generally as a rule of thumb, I wouldn't call anybody in a junior level, a software engineer. Um, and I would call less people in like a senior or staff position, a developer or programmer versus an engineer. They, they definitely can get there. I've met people who are senior or above and are very, even like in their own description, developer or programmer. Like they don't want to design systems. They want to focus on like a language and be very proficient with it. And that's totally fine. So what's one piece of advice you would give to the world's junior developers that could help them stretch a little bit closer to senior, what would that be? Ooh, okay. So the problem here is distilling this down to one nugget. Um, so I deal with this a lot, helping out with NSS. Uh, and I guess it comes in two pieces. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna break your request up front. I have two pieces of advice. That's one, okay. uh, be less nervous. You're your own worst enemy in a lot of applications. So whether you're second guessing a decision you make, whether you're stumbling through a technical interview, whether you have imposter syndrome, everybody deals with those things. And the answer is not to try and overinflate how good you are, right? If you spent a weekend cramming PHP, you are not a PHP developer. Do not say that. Do not put it on your resume. You're going to have a bad time applying for PHP positions. Yeah. Um, but like be very honest with yourself and with your peers about your capabilities 
and acknowledge that it's okay because you're trying to improve. Other people will re- recognize that. It comes up a lot right. in reviews where I'm not trying to like make you feel bad at what you don't know. I'm trying to get to know what you know so I can make mm-hmm. a decision about it. Right. Um, secondly, and this is sort of targeted at a specific class of juniors and people getting started more and more, I think there's a shift from traditional CS majors to boot camp grads, and that's fine. However, if you are not already aware, you should be very aware that boot camps are focused on teaching you as much as they can to the 95% audience, right? To give a concrete example. You might learn how to work with Python and Django. You might not learn about requirements.txt and how to manage packages in Python and Django, which is a very important thing. And that's just because as a junior, you likely won't be dealing with it initially. Tailing off of that, they tend to focus more on practical implementations of a specific framework, like working with React, right? Or um, Django. And then not so much focused on language concepts, like what is OOP, what is solid, what is dry, what yep. are class methods, what's passed by value, passed by reference. These are things that you would get in a CS school, which ironically you get less practical implementation in a CS school. So there's benefits each yep. way. But like, be very aware and cognizant about what it is that you are not covering. And if you don't know what you don't know, Ask people around you, like get involved with your community, go to meetups, get on Slack. There's community discords for every major language and ask, or even ask your instructors and professors in boot camps, like, Hey, what's some supplemental stuff I could go after? Um, the one yeah. that comes up the most is data structures and like data structures are usually not taught as a concept. And like, while you can do most of what you need with Lister dictionaries or maps, whatever you call them in your language, they're not really covered individually. So, right. Long spiel, but I think those are probably the two major takeaways I give to juniors. That's good. That's good. Uh, so uh, yeah, and I'm, I'm sure the juniors out there really appreciate that. This is this is great wisdom coming from somebody with a lot of experience. Um, so the last question I want to ask you is: uh, What are some things that you see great developers doing? What are some of their behaviors? What are their, what are some of their hallmarks? Oh, we mentioned foresight. That's a big one. I know, I know you also mentioned communication is one, one thing that is, is, is a hallmark, a very good communicator. Uh, you have to be a very good communicator if you're going to be really, truly senior. So what are some, uh, just a few other things that you've picked up on? Okay. So this first one, I don't know that it's like a direct thing. Like, I, I don't think that by working towards getting to this state, you're going to get the same benefit as arriving at it naturally as a preface, but wanting to develop for other developers rather than for a use case or customers. I have found that as people grow in seniority, they become more and more interested in writing things that will be used by their peers rather than have business value, right? Bootstrap frameworks, development experience things, testing, whatever. Um, and I, I don't think that you could start working towards that today as a junior and really benefit from it. But I do think it's like a, a good indicator that you're sort of arriving at a state where like you're, you've grown. Um, open source contribution is another one. And uh, I'll throw on there like specifically strong open source contribution. Um, like not just 
testing and bug implementation, but like feedback, feature design implementation. If you make it to like core contributor status on a major open source framework or open source repository, you're probably big enough to call yourself senior. Yeah. Um, and that is something you can work towards. You can get involved today with an open source project that you probably use, whether or not you know it, and begin working your way up. Um, and that can lead to career opportunities. So at Butterfly, we have hired people directly out of the open source community a couple of times. Um, yeah, it happens. Yep. Um, there, there are a few other things, but again, it, they sort of fit into that same category of I don't know that they're traits you can develop yourself, rather just like than indicators for senior ones. And maybe that's a good way to phrase it, right? If you're a junior looking for a mentor, look for people that exhibit these behaviors. Mm, yeah. So contributing to open source projects, wanting to write dev for dev stuff, being involved in the community, um, publishing educational content. So I spent a lot of time on Twitch. Um, I used to stream quite a lot. I don't at the moment, um, but I still watch people stream a lot. So like Anthony Satili, I think I say his last name right. Uh, Anthony writes code, is an author of like a lot of things that I use day to day at a profitable company, uh, pre-commit and pre-commit CI. Uh, he contributes to PyTest heavily. Like he is a great, great hallmark of like the kind of behaviors you would want to see in people that you want to mentor from. So uh, cool. I think I think those are probably like the things I would go to. Yeah, I th that's, that's definitely awesome stuff. Um, I think the more the more developers know about what are the, the goals out there? What are the milestones that we should be reaching? What are the carrots that maybe are hanging in front of us? The more we know about what's out in front of us, the more capable we are of, of walking towards them. Once we know what our true north is, we can start taking steps towards it. So um, that's, that's what this podcast is all about, really. It's, it's about trying to help uh, developers all over, no matter what stage you're in in life, to actually start to see what are the characteristics that you should try to emulate or that you should want or the milestones that you should be reaching so that people can start moving towards uh, seniority as a, as a true North. Yeah. And I would like to that end, I would throw out a couple of more of like general tidbits to consider. There's a concept of like long-term goals or stretch goals and like short-term goals, right? So like long-term goals may be something like I want to author a popular framework or I want to become a core contributor for Python or whatever you mm -hmm. short-term goals are much more achievable. Um, and I have found more and more my short-term goals are emulating other people that I think are better than me. So Anthony is an example of that, right? I think all the stuff he does is fantastic. And I want to try and like model my software aspects after him. Um, so I think having, even if it's not a direct mentorship, right? Like I don't talk to him regularly, I show up on his Twitch, chat with him there, that's it. But having someone to like emulate as a role model is good. Um, and then to harken back to things I wish developers did. Um, it's a very, very specific thing, but it comes up a lot. And it's a concept that comes up in leadership, but I think propagates elsewhere. And it's disagreeing and committing, right? Mm -hmm. You can get bogged down in technical discussion and deliberation for hours and get nowhere yes. and everybody gets very frustrated. Um, at some point in time, recognizing that's going on disagreeing with the specific path you're going to take, but then committing to doing it the best you can anyway is more fruitful. Mm -hmm. um, whether you're in a leadership position and you have to make that decision for the team, 
or you're in a junior position and you don't understand what's going on or don't have like the technical vernacular to argue against it, but you just commit to doing it the way that's being proposed to alleviate fiction, friction and then acknowledge that maybe you need to revisit it or acknowledge that you could be wrong and it's totally acceptable to do it that way. So disagreeing and committing is a good foundational skill to work on. Um, that's not to say that you shouldn't disagree, just like within reason. Um, it's another concept of like two-way and one-way doors, right? Deciding on a yeah. database is kind of a one-way door where it's very difficult and painful to change later. But deciding on a specific uh, pattern for implementing classes is a two-way door. You can switch to the new one at any point in time and go back. Right. So. Yeah, and and uh, I mean, we're going to disagree, right? When we're building projects, we're with other human beings in the room. Oh. Everybody's got their opinion. <laughs> Everybody's got their their uh, their favorite way of doing things. Everybody's got their their uh, their tool that they like. Um, and we got to eventually fa fall upon an answer that we can all at least work with. We don't we may not like it, but we got to be able to work with it. When you said we're going to disagree, I was gearing up to listen to a rebuttal for why you disagreed with my standpoint rather than like you <laughs> echoing that we're going to disagree. Well, I disagree. I disagree very vehemently with that. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that's, that's why I was like, I was so caught off guard. You said we're going to disagree. And I was like, oh, how so? I was like <laughs> prepping myself to be bestowed some logic and insight. <laughs> well, Will, I really appreciate your time today with me. This has been a great conversation. Um, I, I think that that our community needs to hear from from people that are doing great things in our industry, that are that are doing things in in their own teams, in their own companies, uh, that are not, not not necessarily all over YouTube, not necessarily all over the blogosphere, but are actually going out and doing things and doing them right. And, and excelling in what they do. So I really appreciate your time and, and sharing your wisdom with us today. Uh, this has been awesome. And um, before we go, uh, I just want to give you a chance to let everybody know how they can reach you, how they can follow you, or if you just want to like tout something, like uh, give, give a free plug to something, go for it. Yeah. Uh, so first of all, thank you for having me. It's been a lot of fun. Um, I, like I mentioned before, I used to stream a lot. I don't as much anymore, but I really enjoy the community engagement. So I was super excited that you posted this and the opportunity came up. Um, as far as getting in contact with me, so my email is will at wcj.dev. Um, there's no website associated with that. I just like the domain. You can also reach me at wcjdev on Twitter. Um, if you're in the Nashville area or even not, there's a Nashville community Slack. Uh, I'm on there all the time and very active in the Python channel, beginners and mentors. Um, I think those are probably the best ways to go about doing it. Awesome. Awesome. Well, uh, once again, thank you so much, Will, and uh, we'll see you around. Thanks for joining us today on the Driven Developer Podcast. I'm your host, Byron Somerdahl. This podcast is for you. It's all about trying to help you become what the world needs you to be, a driven developer. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please share it with others or comment down below. If you'd like to follow me or this podcast, just look us up on facebook.com slash driven developer, and we'll see you next time.